You just came back from Gaza and you've been in this role before. You've described the situation there as dire in, in previous years. What was your initial reaction when you first entered Gaza during this war? Well, clearly the situation has, has changed dramatically since I was last there. Um, the thing that strikes you most is, is the, the numbers. You know, as soon as you arrive through into at Rafa, and it hits you straight away, the, the, the immensity of the, the people who are displaced. Every street, every pavement is being sort of crowded. You have crowds there, but you also have these makeshift tents built onto the side of buildings, encroaching on the roads, very hard to move around. The place is really, really packed. I think that's the one thing. The second thing, I think, is the fact that, um, you know, that this, uh, the, the crowded nature and the lack of services that people have, because this has happened so quickly, of that number of people coming to the, to the, the south, people reckon sort of 1.7 or 8 million people in Rafa, which used to have a population of around 250,000. People have taken up space in hospitals and taken up space in uh, schools, uh, UNRWA schools and other. And you go to these places and you just see the conditions that people live in, the squalor, the sort of the, the crowded nature of it, the makeshift nature of it. No one had the time to plan anything. People ran from where they came from, the middle area, from the north area, and they came with very little. And they've had to try and set up a place for themselves in a, in a very difficult, chaotic environment. And the fact that it's the, the, the winter is there in, in as well. So all of that makes it very, very difficult. You know, and it's overwhelmed us because, you know, we have got a very, we had a limited role there for this type of work and we've had to try and scale up. So it's trying to address the needs when the needs, and even when I was there, I was there eight days ago and I came back just two days ago. And the difference in that time was the fact that the crowds still steep keep coming and this, uh, the desperation is getting deeper and uh, this, uh, the, the human suffering is more intensified. So, but more importantly and more tragic, what we need to do more, we have to scale up more, get more people, get more access, bring in more material, but it's, it's a mammoth task. I'm sure you also met uh, uh, colleagues that were there when you were in this role previously. What what experiences did they share with you? Well, I, mean, I think the first one is the sort of the human dimension, the fact that people tell you what they've left behind. Some people tell you they've left their houses which have been destroyed and others tell you the family members that have died and, you know, the life they once had is gone and probably gone for such a long time. So there's a... There's a degree of shock and there's a degree of despair. And I think there's a sort of a, a hopelessness that's there as well because they don't see any answers to what it is they, they then face ahead. It's amazing also that the resilience and the, the steadfastness of some of these colleagues who have been in that situation, who have come to the South fleeing as a displaced person, but still turning up to do work. It's quite incredible that the that people in, in Gaza have that spirit and they still keep going on. And uh, I, I mean, the fact that there's been, you know, 146 UN colleagues have killed, others have lost parts of their families, yet they still deliver. You know, we're still, it's not as though you're running away to safety because where you are right now is unsafe. Where you are right now is getting more and more cramped and crowded. And so it's not as though you've arrived somewhere as a, a displaced person and that's it. There's more to come. Like you just said, UN humanitarians have been raising their voice about the, the challenges of being able to get aid into Gaza at scale. On the ground, what does that mean for the population? How much of their needs are being met right now? Before this, what, what you had was around 500 trucks per day coming in as commercial transport. And the UN served the, those who were sort of 
unfortunately not able to uh, have the ability to, you know, buy those things commercially. So we would put humanitarian. So we'd have about 200 trucks in a day and that covered the population, the, the humanitarian and the, the commercial. So what you have now is that the commercial has stopped. So the people who were being served by the commercial sector are now squeezing what's in the humanitarian sector and everybody's in need. What we've got is a situation where the key issues for us is better shelter, more food supplies, better water and sanitation, sewage, and the health needs. And, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of protection concerns there, you know, gender-based violence, you know, child protection issues, there's a lot of unaccompanied children. And then also we need ourselves as humanitarians, we have to have the ability to do that work. So that means protection for us as well, which means having good communication systems, having the ability to move around and the deconfliction in terms of our humanitarian movements are actually safeguarded. And unfortunately, that hasn't been the case today. There's been a number of incidents so we're trying to bring in more trucks. Yesterday, we had 200 trucks, which is the most we've ever had, a crossing into the RAFA. Um, there's nothing coming in from the north. It's all coming in from the south. So we're trying to serve the population. But we know there's probably all of the population of 2.2 million need some assistance of some kind. And we are right now uh, facing an uphill struggle to just address the needs of those who we reach but we need to reach far further, far deeper and far further in places like the North part. But there's ongoing kinetic and, and military operations in these areas that would prevent us from even moving in some of the central zones. So we're kind of stuck where we are and it's very hard to move convoys. The convoys going north to serve that 250, 300,000 estimated population there. We don't have the, the, the ability to do that quickly. There's only one road, it's the coast road, because the major road in the middle is actually under military operations at the moment. So we're squeezing all of our efforts to the north while we're trying to struggle to, to serve the south. So we have to scale up and we have to get more commercial. We, the commercial has to start again. We also have to get more support from donors who have been very willing to let us buy more trucks, rent more trucks to bring that in. But it's a struggle that we face. And those four key sectors I just mentioned to you are where, we, where the life saving will take place. And that's where we are. I've heard this from several UN officials saying that we need commercial shipments to start coming back into Gaza. But if the economy is in shambles and, and, and there's, you know, military activity going on, how can people go on about commerce and go, go on about their lives in you know, normal economy? What we would like to do eventually is that, you know, if the commercial sector sets up again, we can actually start supply. The shops are just closed because there's nothing in them. All the, the stocks have gone. We have to replenish those stocks. And once we have that up to a certain scale, we can then start to use cash cards, cash voucher systems. But you are a long way off that right now. We've got a long, long struggle of just keeping the supply of humanitarian assistance, especially food and medical supplies in there. Because if we don't do that, these things, these items are going to become very, um, shall we say, they're rife for the black market. And we'll start to see this exploitation taking place. We've already seen that happening. Some Israeli officials have said that the only thing hindering the entry of, of aid into Gaza is the limitations of the UN. How, how would you respond to that? It's a difficult environment um, because we've been able to do limited aid distributions in the Rafa government where half of the population that estimated to be and the rest of the Gaza Strip has been largely stopped due to the intensity of the, of the, the hostilities and the restrictions on our movements. You know, we've had 20 
only five out of 24 convoys that plan convoys for food, medicine have been allowed to go to the north, for example. So, you know, we are trying to increase our operations and uh, our operations have been sort of hampered by the insistence of the government of Israel to use a pedestrian crossing at Rafa to bring truckloads of supplies in. And while it's working well, it's not, we can't rely on all of Gaza and 2.2 million people on one crossing point. We have to open up elsewhere. And so the humanitarian operations are kept on us at a very light availability of fuel, then this is a lifeline for our operations at the hospitals to keep the oxygenations, keep the, the various parts of the, the actual hospitals working, the desalination plants to keep drinking water going there. The, the ongoing humanity and operation, I've got to say, it's absolutely outstanding, the work that's been done by our national colleagues there, supported by the internationals. So we are really struggling. So I don't think it's because we are, we are against getting more in or we are, we are not taking up our challenges. We are at this 100% plus, but there are restrictions in there. It has to be that so that we can actually bring in what we need in more and more places where there are populations and not serving 2.2 million through one door. And that's something that has to change. With the situation in, in Gaza right now, sometimes the West Bank can fall off the radar. Do you have any updates on the situation there? Well, I mean, I think we all see um, the situation in the West Bank. There's a few, there have been flashpoints in the West Bank since um, since early, early start of last year. And then, and then since October, the, the tragic issue on 7th of October, I think that's accelerated. And we've seen the large numbers of over 300 Palestinians have been killed. And in that, there's some 80 children have been killed. We've seen, in, you know, from Orchard and the reports it's done, that there's a, an increase, obviously, in settler violence against uh, Palestinians. And um, I think that's something that we see as, as a constant trend. There was about 200,000 work permits in Israel um, from, for Palestinians working, but that's now been suspended. And I think that many of them um, probably lost their jobs now. And there's all the civil servants that were there, and they're now getting reduced wages because the, the actual Palestinian Authority is struggling because the, the, the transfer of revenues from Israel has, um, hasn't happened for some time. The humanitarian community and many parts of it are inside and a part of the, the West Bank. And so we're monitoring it. We're trying to address the crisis that comes up. We try to deal with uh, you know displacement and all these other issues that happen. And uh, it's something that's very, very hard to keep those two things going at the same time, the concentration on Gaza, but then not trying to forget the, the, the size of the problem and the ongoing problem that's happening in the West Bank. 57 years now of occupation, um, you know, issues over 75 years old, people are, are really starting to, to lose hope in the peace process. So what can be done to restore that hope and revitalize the office of the special coordinator to reach us? Yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, the special coordinator's office is still, you know, is still full on in trying to address all of these crises which are, which are interlinked, which is the, uh, the humanitarian linked with the, uh, the governance challenges. So that's something that will have to happen. But I think at the same time, we have to push harder and strengthen the negotiations on the immediate unconditional release of hostages by Hamas. That has to happen. We have to scale up assistance going into Gaza with, you know, taking into account Israel's own internal security concerns. And we have to increase the humanitarian crossings to allow aid into Gaza, such as Kerem Shalom, in addition to Rafa. But we also have to look at northern crossing points we have to restore these uh, basic services, medical, humanitarian, which have been impacted by this conflict, and then start to build new ones if they need to resume their life-saving operations. 
And we have to allow more injured and patients and those people to get treatment outside Gaza because Gaza is devoid of the full range of services required for people who have been caught up in this crisis. And we have to allow, you know, more and more services into those areas. But, you know, I think that, you know, the, the peace process can't be understood or considered at this time and we're almost 100 days of war and it's how is it going to end and, and if and when it does how can the parties the different parts of the palestinian parties come together and how can then the palestinian and the israelis sit around the negotiating table and given the depths of what's happened in that time so i i think that there's a lot of healing to go through and there's a lot of circumspection to go through is a lot of understanding what all this means and then but sometimes we have to get back to that peace process some way of pulling out an understanding of how people are going to live together that was exactly going to be my, my, my last question to you is how is it possible that after all of this parties can actually sit back down on the table how, how can we explain this to the layperson who doesn't know well i think peace is more normal than war I think that's the, the, the fundamental. And I think that all people want to live in peace and have a life. They want to have a future. They want to have dreams. They want to be able to know what's coming next. They want to be able to socialize and have families. And you can't have that in, in a situation where you've got this conflict, where you've got this the insecurity. And I think that has to disappear. And then you can start the mending process, the healing process. You have to then think of yourself, how do you linked to your neighbor how do you link to the people that you are going to have to live side by side with and it's an understanding and appreciation and accommodation and we see it in many many conflicts around the world and unfortunately this one is one of the most long-standing and the most deep-rooted